Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me, to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the lands. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They rose up, drove him out of the town, and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word uh, each week, we, we want to have Jesus preach to us, much like he preached to this, this synagogue. And so, uh, Father, I, we, can't, we can't make that happen. Um, that has to be your Spirit's grace on us to speak through these words, the words of Jesus. So do that, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, growing up in church, if I were to have painted an image of Jesus it probably would have looked something like, like this. Jesus, gentle, serene. If you're not a well-behaved boy, then you go to church because this slam-holding Jesus will calm you down. And I'm not sure how long I had this vision of Jesus as this really nice, soft person who somehow ended up dead. But I do remember how that image began to be shattered for me. And this text was one of those moments. Jesus preaches his very first sermon, and people from his hometown try to throw him off a cliff to kill him. And I would wonder, how many of us, when we think of Jesus, have that type of vision of a man who is so controversial, so confrontational, That at times, and not just at times, many times, and eventually this is how his own life ended, people wanted to react with him towards with violence. That in the words of author Tom Howard, Jesus was not a pale Galilean, but a towering and furious figure who will not be managed. And so one of the reasons why we're calling this series, Through the Gospel of Luke, Rediscovering Jesus, is because the Jesus I often meet in cultural expressions in in America is a Jesus who does not confront anybody, who really just wants to make us all into well-behaved people, (laughs) 
and who generally, it's confusing to us how he ended up as a cross executed as a state criminal. Jesus is the kind of person whom his hometown people wanted to, to kill him. And so when I read this story, two questions come to mind. First is, what did he say that caused such a violent reaction to him? And secondly, and more importantly, will I try to throw Jesus off the cliff? Why did, like, why did people want to kill him? And what's my response to him? That sounds like an interesting sermon. And that's the two questions I want to explore. What is his message? What, what was so confrontational and offensive about what Jesus said here? And secondly, what's our response to what he said? So first, why, why do people want to kill Jesus? So this is, this is Jesus in his hometown. He's, he's in Nazareth, where he was born, where he probably grew up. And he does what he do, did probably a thousand times. And Luke make, makes clear, this was Jesus' custom. He went to the synagogue when it was time to worship. And, and, and this time, what's unique is they asked Jesus to get up and do the teaching. Um, so much like in our own day in the synagogue, someone would read a scripture, and then someone would explain that scripture to the audience. And so Jesus is given the scroll from Isaiah. That's the... the the passage for the week, and, or the, the, the scroll for the week, and it's clear Jesus goes to this passage in particular. Right? Luke wants you to, to, to see that. Jesus found the place where this was written, and then Jesus reads these words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then we're told he sits down, because this was the custom in this day. In that day, uh, everyone who listened to the sermon had to stand up during the sermon, and the person who got to give the sermon got to sit down. There's just something to think about. Um, so Jesus, he sits down, and then he, he preaches a one-sentence sermon. Basically what he says is, that's me. And that's the end of the sermon. I know what you're thinking, one, wow, one sentence in a sermon, it's 10, that's something, you know, just to think about, uh, to consider. And listen, two things to that. First, I'm not Jesus. That's a Jesus thing, not a me thing. And secondly, I, I will make you this deal. If I ever open up the Bible, and it's speaking about me in particular, it's a prophecy about me, I will preach a one sentence sermon. So don't hold your breath. <clears throat> so he preaches one sentence sermon, and, and here's, they love it. Right, Verse 22, he finishes the sermon, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. So they love what he preaches. And that's typically how you would expect a first sermon to go, right? It's like hometown, great, great message, little Jesus, that's awesome, great job. And that's, that's how first sermons typically, um, typically go. I remember uh, my first sermon here at, Ale uh, at Aletha when I was a pastoral resident, which is almost six years ago now. Um, I almost made a huge mistake in that sermon. Um, that I, I wrote the, the manuscript, and typically we share uh, our manuscript with the staff just so that you know, they, they could read it. So I share the manuscript with the, the staff. And in my introduction was a really scathing Kansas City Chiefs joke. And it was pretty good, um, and I was pretty proud of it. But then in, uh, in the line, someone from the Olathe staff just commented, hey, the, the voice of the Chiefs, Mitch Holtis, attends this church. You probably don't want to say that. And I remember thinking, like, he's got a sense of humor, probably, right? Like, I should maybe put... So I, just, I cut the joke, and it's a good thing, because I think if I had... Now knowing Mitch, I think had I told that joke, at the end of that sermon, Mitch would have thrown me off a cliff 
for saying that. Or more, more likely what would have happened is Mitch and Tammy would have been like, what a jerk. I don't like that guy. And when it came time to plant Shawnee, they would have been like, nah, we're good. We're not coming with. Um, and then all of you would have, would have wanted to throw me off the clip because we would not have gotten Mitch and Tammy as a part of our campus because I made some dumb Chiefs joke six years ago. Um, but thankfully, I was, I was saved from that. First sermons are dangerous. Man, you got to be careful. Um, and that's Jesus here. And yet Jesus' message to them, they, they, initially they love it. And here is, this is Jesus' message really in a sentence. It's the, it's the middle line of this passage, or the, the third line of this passage. The message of Jesus is that there is good news for the poor. And if you want to sum up everything that's going to happen in the Gospel of Luke, the message of Jesus is there is good news for the poor. And I don't have time to totally unpack this. Um, Luke is one of the, the books I studied most in seminary. But that is the central message of Jesus through Luke and through Acts, is there is good news for the poor. But I do want to point that out in three ways, why, this is, why I think this is true and this is important for us. First is the position of this story in particular in the Gospel of Luke. So if you work through the Gospel of Luke, Luke 1 and 2, the, the birth of Jesus is foretold. And, and even there you see that his message is, is somewhat going to be unique to the vulnerable. That, that Mary's song about Jesus is that the, those who are filled are now going to go hungry and those who are hungry are now going to be filled. And then you go to, to Luke 3 and Jesus is baptized. He's filled with the, the Spirit. He's blessed by the Father. And then in Luke 4, after his baptism, he goes in and he faces temptation and he gets to temptation. And now the next story, the next account, Jesus' public ministry is beginning. So this is the opening words of Jesus' ministry, which means these are defining words. Luke wants, like, you need to slow, you need to hear this. And it's clear, Jesus has already been doing other things because the people in Nazareth say, hey, you already did some things in Capernaum, do them here. So Jesus' ministry has already been going on, but Luke has chosen this moment so you understand, based, this is what Jesus is about. There's good news for the poor. Then secondly, it's, it's clear, Jesus actually picked Isaiah 61 as the text he wanted to preach from. Like he, He's given the scroll Isaiah, but he goes to this passage in particular, and he wants people to understand, this is what I'm about. There's good news for the poor. Those who are oppressed are going to have liberty. Those who are blind are going to see. Those who are in prison are going to be set free. And then third is, is in Luke 7, when John the Baptist wonders, Jesus, are you really the Messiah? And John sends messengers to Jesus, basically to say, are you actually the Messiah, um, or should I expect someone else? And here's how Jesus says to John, yes, I'm the Messiah. Here's his answer, a part of his answer, in Luke 7, 22. Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. So Jesus says to John, the way you know I'm the Messiah is the poor have good news preached to them. So the message of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke is there's good news for the poor. And that, like, that sounds nice, right? So why, why do they throw him off the cliff? Why do they try to throw him off the cliff? So think of it like this. Every Sunday, uh, I preach a sermon and, or not every sermon, but, you know, I preach a sermon, and then I go park myself out by the door just to be present, right? If you have a question, if you want to talk to me, I'm just there by the door. And oftentimes people come and, and give a word about, you know, here's what I took from the sermon, or, how about this question? So imagine you do that, like, and, and you, I preach a great sermon, so much so that you, you marvel at the gracious words that come from my mouth. 
And you go, you want to tell me that. And then we have an interaction, and I say something to you that makes, me, that makes you so angry at me. You want to drive me up the road to the hill and throw me off. What would I have to say for you to do that? Because that's what Jesus said. And so now we're in this transition moment where I told hey, this is good news for the poor. And we're like, oh, this is nice. Let's settle in. Yeah, tell me more about that. And when Jesus tells more about that, they want to kill him. So message one, why did they want to kill him? It was the message, the good news for the poor. So second, what is our response to that message as Jesus begins to unpack more what that means? As Jesus basically says two things that are, are deeply offensive to, to them. And I, I'm, I'm going to build up to them, and I'm going I'm to try to couch it in language so that we understand. I think so much is lost in us of what's happening here um, because of the ancient language. But what Jesus, he, he really goes after them here. And there's two things that deeply offend them. And the first is this. As Jesus, when he reads Isaiah 61, he stops at a particular place. So if you go back into, and you don't have to, I'll read this for you. If you go back into Isaiah 61, let me read for you the line Jesus cuts off. So the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Here's the line and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus doesn't read that line. And there's a reason he doesn't read that line. See, the people in this day, they're living in a time when they were oppressed by Roman rulers, by people who were the tax collectors, by people who were in authority over them. And the assumption of the day was when the Messiah finally came, what he was going to do was he was going to bring his vengeance on those oppressors, take them out, kill them, and, let, and, and, and release Israel into freedom. What Jesus does instead is say, is say, I'm not bringing vengeance yet. In fact, the very people you don't want to, to experience my salvation the foreigner in particular, which is why he names two people. He names Naaman and a widow of Zarephath. They're both, they're both outside of Israel. They're both foreigners. Jesus makes clear, my salvation is for them too. I've not come to liquidate Rome and to condemn the tax collectors and to, to destroy your oppressors. I've come to offer my salvation to everyone. And you say, well, that, that doesn't sound very offensive. Hold on. Who is the last person you want in the kingdom of God? Who's the person that you would not preach the gospel to? That you would want the, the vengeance of God to come on them? Because what Jesus is saying, this is the crassest way I can put it, what Jesus is saying to these people at the synagogue, if you have no interest in them entering the kingdom of God, I have no interest in you. If you have no interest in the salvation of the tax collector, of the Roman oppressors, you can't be a part of my kingdom. And that, that shift of expectations would have been devastating to them. 
that suddenly the people they thought Messiah was going was gonna to take out now are going to be invited into the kingdom of God. And the question for us is, who do you write off? Who do we condemn in our, in our own heart? Who do we withhold the salvation of God from? Who's the person who Jesus came to you and said, I want them in the kingdom also? You would say, well, I don't know that I want to be in the kingdom if they're there. So that's the first thing you got to wrestle with. Is Jesus says the kingdom of God is for everyone, especially for the people you don't want. I've not come to bring vengeance yet. And to be clear, he, he will bring vengeance. Don't hear what I'm saying. Is everyone's going to be saved? That's not what I'm saying. In Jesus' day, in this phase in which you and I live, prior to the second coming of Christ, it's not the day of vengeance yet. It's the day of the good news for the poor, and the poor includes potentially everyone, especially the people we don't want it to include. So that's the first thing he says that, that offends them. But there's something else, and this, this is even worse. That we should be asked, so how, how do we get from, from loving uh, the sermon to being thrown, to like, I'm, we're going to throw you off a cliff. How do we get from that move? And the clear, it's, it's in verse 22. There's a shift here. Verse 22, all spoke well of him, marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Right, so it's, they love it. This is good. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And that's the, that's the key. Whatever they mean by that is what changes everything. And, and there are typically two ways of taking this. One way is to say, well, they're, what they're saying here is they're actually like, they're speaking like degradingly or sneeringly of Jesus. Like, you're just Joseph's son. Who made you, um, who made you the Messiah, right? That could be. But I don't think that makes sense because like they just said they loved his sermon. And I think what becomes clear is when Jesus says what he says, that's when we can understand what they meant by, is this not Joseph's son? So here's what Jesus says next. He said to them, doubtless you will quote me this prophet. Uh, proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you do at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I said to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Here's what's going on, I think. When they say, is this not Joseph's son, what they're saying here is, is, is Jesus is from Nazareth. And we're from Nazareth. We, we have the inside track to the Messiah's blessings. We get special treatment. And this is why Jesus says to them, like, you're expecting me, because I'm here in Nazareth, this is my hometown, you're expecting me to do just what I did in Capernaum. You're expecting me to do more. You're expecting me to, to perform for you, to let you in in a way that no one else gets to come in. Just like, you know, when someone wins the lottery, um, it actually creates a lot of problems. Or, or if, you, if you attain a lot of wealth in your life, it typically attracts a lot of problems because people start coming to you and say, hey, you owe me. I deserve some of that. Remember what I did for you? We're family. Why wouldn't you give? Um, to me, that often when you, when you suddenly have a lot of resources or means, that often becomes a piece of, of people looking at you, not in other people from your hometown, from your family, not looking at you with grace, but with, with hey, you owe me. And so things get, get tense, and Jesus like jumps into the deep end of the tension. And he says something that really angers them, and, and he mentions, like I said a second ago, two Old Testament stories. A man named Naaman and a widow from a town called Zarephath. And they are both foreigners. They're both, and Jesus accentuates this point, saying essentially like, I, like Elijah could have gone to someone in Israel um, who was a widow, but he didn't. He went to a foreigner. Elijah could have gone to a, an Israelite with, a leper, with leprosy, but he didn't. He went to a foreigner. Basically to, to push on the point, hey, Israel, the salvation is not just for you. It's for the whole world. And this angers them because here, here's what Jesus is saying to them with those two stories. And what he would say to you and me. 
Jesus looks at them and says, I don't owe you anything. Just let us, I know you're like, Jesus would never say that. That's, yes, he's saying it right. Jesus is looking at them and saying, I don't owe you anything. And he would say the same to us. And there's only two, two responses when you take in the reality. That's, that's Jesus' posture towards this world is, one, you try to throw him off a cliff, right? How dare he say that? I'm a decent person. I've worked hard. I've done good things. How in the world could God say to me, I don't owe you anything? What a terrible thing to say. So you can throw him off a cliff or you can embrace your spiritual poverty. And you can look at God and say, God, God owes me nothing. Even my best days, my heart is split. Even when I do good things, I often do them with bad motives. God does not owe me a thing. So let me ask, what, what do you think God owes you? Because the message of Jesus is exclusive to the spiritually poor. Jesus doesn't come and say, I have good news for the middle class. The decent people who do decent things, the good people who do good things, the, the good people who are better than the bad people, if you're, if you're trying really hard, I'll get you into heaven. That's not his message. His message is for the poor, for the captive, for the blind, for the oppressed. And everybody else will try to throw him off a cliff or put him on a cross. And so which are you? Someone who will embrace your spiritual poverty, that God owes you nothing and you have nothing to offer him. Or... That's not fair. That's not right. I'm a good person. I'm trying hard. Look what I've done. And so let me try to help you discern what type of person you are. I want to tell you one story and ask you one question. And the story I want to tell you is Naaman's story. Why I think Jesus names Naaman in this moment. In this story, it's powerfully told in the Jesus Storybook Bible. So if you have that, you should go back and read that story tonight. Um, and I'm going to put images behind us so that you can kind of, you can kind of get some of the imagery with this, this story. Because Sally Lloyd-Jones tells the story in a powerful way. And I'm going to, I'm going to, at times I'm going to be reading straight out of the book. At times I'm going to skip ahead. But here's that story. Naaman, a man Jesus mentions here to explain his own salvation. Naaman was a very important person. And Naaman was a very wealthy person. He was a, a general, a Syrian. But Naaman got sick with something called leprosy, and it's, it's a nasty disease that keeps you, uh, you, you can't feel anything on your extremities. And over time, bits of you fall off without you noticing, like bashed fingers or, or squished toes, which might sound funny, but it wasn't, and Naaman wasn't laughing. So a slave girl, an Israelite who served Naaman, whom he had conquered and oppressed, had compassion on him and told him there was a prophet named Elisha in Israel that could heal him. And so this important man, Naaman, this wealthy general, has to humble himself and take the direction of a slave girl. And he did. And when he gets to Elisha, Elisha doesn't even go out and talk to him. He sends a servant out to talk to Naaman, this important man. And Elijah surely, or Naaman surely thought, doesn't Elisha know who I am? I'm a general. I'm important. But what the servant said next made him even crosser. Wash in here, he said. 
just wash, name and left, in that slimy, stinky river. He looked around to see if there was some kind of joke, but it wasn't. And Naaman thought to himself, any person can wash in a river. I'm Naaman. I'm important. I should do something important for God to heal me. And I love the way Sally Lloyd-Jones put this. Of course, you and I both know that's not how God does things. All Naaman needed was nothing. It was the one thing Naaman didn't have. And eventually, Naaman humbled himself. He gets into this dirty river to wash, and this dirty river becomes the source of his healing. But the entire story is one of if you want the healing of God, you have to embrace, he had to embrace his spiritual poverty. He had to be, the, the general had to take the direction of a slave girl. The general had to get into a dirty river and wash himself to be, to be cleansed and to be healed of his disease because salvation is exclusive to the spiritually poor. And if you try to come to God in any other way, with your own works, with your own efforts, with your own goodness, Jesus will not accept that. And he'll look at you and say, I don't, I don't owe you anything. You haven't earned anything with me. I don't owe you anything. Which is why we come to God not with our efforts, but with repentance. Why we got, come to God not with our good works, but with our confessions. Which is why we come to God not with our expectations, but with our emptiness. And here's the thing, here's the, the actual good news of this, is that while, while hearing Jesus say to us, I don't owe you anything, sounds like bad news, it's not. It's actually the beginning of grace. For Jesus to say to us, I don't owe you anything, it's not a door slammed shut in our face. It's actually, it's a door opened. But the home is grace and there's no other way in. And so I want to do, how I want to end our, our time together is just to, to think, three diagnoses, three questions. Are you coming to Jesus embracing your spiritual poverty? Or are you coming to him thinking your good works has put God in your debt? Or thinking that your good works makes you better than other people? Which way are you coming at God? Three questions. The first question, and, and to be clear, these three, if I had time, I'd take you all the way through the Gospel of Luke and see how these all get works out, worked out. Um, but since Jesus preached a one-sentence sermon, I'm not going to preach a one-hour sermon. So this is just, these questions aren't just from this text. This is from the whole arc, a whole arc of the Gospel of Luke. But the first diagnosis question, whether or not you're coming to Jesus in spiritual poverty or spiritual uh, middle class or wealth, first is how easily can you forgive? If your approach to God is, if my approach to God is, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. I'm a good person, therefore God owes me. I'm a good person, therefore that was, that's what makes me a Christian. It's going to be really hard for you to forgive someone when they wrong you. That yes, it's brutal that Jesus says, I don't owe you anything, but that, that's grace. That's the beginning of grace. Is even though Jesus says, I don't owe you anything, he offers us everything. You can't relate to Jesus in a, a transactional relate. He will not relate to you that way, but he will relate to you through grace. And most people can't live in that home. Most people can't live in the home of grace. We want to build it ourselves. We want to earn it ourselves. That way, when other people don't earn it, we can keep them below us. When other people act out of their spiritual poverty towards us, then we can say to them, you know, you don't owe this. We, I don't owe you this. And hold it, hold it against them. 
But when you have been forgiven, when you know the greatest defining act of your own life is that in your spiritual poverty, Jesus didn't know you anything and yet offered himself to you, then you can know when someone else sins against you, you don't owe them anything. But that's not a door you'll slam shut. It's a door you'll open wide because your home is grace. And Jesus is, is the one who built it for you. So that's for how can you forgive? Second diagnostic question is how do you treat the outcast? That Philip Yancey tells the story and what's so amazing about Grace, who um, was a woman who's a, a prostitute and her life had fallen apart. She'd done some really terrible, unspeakable things, which I won't even, I won't even name the extents of those here. But at some point, someone asked her, why don't you go to church? And her response, which I think captures how many people feel about the church, her response was, why would I go there? I already feel bad enough about myself. And somewhere along the line, we, we the church became the society of good people. Where if you're, not, if you're not a good person, you need to go to church, clean up your acts, and that's where the good people go, and the bad people are outside of the church. But that's upside down of how Jesus presents the kingdom of God in Luke 4. The church is the place of the spiritually homeless and poor and empty, whom God owes nothing, and yet God has given everything. So when someone walks in from a place of sin and failure and, and mistakes, they're not met with a pointed finger reminding them of those things. They're welcomed with open arms because here there is good news for the poor. And I just wonder, how did we end up with that reputation as a church? That rather than the poor running to the church, the poor often run away from the church. How have we lost sight that the central message of Jesus is there is good news for the poor? And so I just encourage you to reflect, what is your posture towards vulnerable people, towards the spiritual failures? Because the moment we start, start putting ourselves in a place of superiority over anybody, then that's the moment where we've, we've said, well, I've, my space before God, it's owned, right? God owes me because I'm this person, and therefore I can look down on others. But when you relate to God through poverty, through spiritual poverty, through grace, you can't look down on anybody. You were homeless, right? We were homeless, and a door was opened to us, and a home was given to us that we never, we didn't earn. We didn't ask for. It wasn't owed to us, yet it was given. You say, what about people who continually fail again and again and again? I'm just like, if you don't see that's you, you're still not relating to Jesus through the gospel. Right? It's, well, I came in, I came in through grace, but now I maintain because I've, I've cleaned up my, my life. Listen, if that's your posture, you probably need to ask some people around you, hey, am I still a sinner? Am I doing anything that, that frustrates you? Here's what I find. I mean, someone who's journeyed with Jesus 20 years, every time I feel like I made progress, I just find, a, oh, that goes deeper than I thought. How do you treat the outcast? Would they look at your life and say, there's good news for the poor? And the third, and this is the most confrontational question, um, is your life good news for the poor? Then I want to be clear, when Jesus says there's good news for the poor, people tend to, to interpret that in, in, in one of two ways. Some people would, say, would, would camp out what, what I've been saying, which is, is true of this passage. Which, that's only a reference to the spiritually poor. Right? It's not for the materially poor. It's only for the spiritually poor. And that Jesus' message doesn't have anything to do with people who are in material poverty. This is a spiritual message. 
right? And that's how a lot of people, and I think that's wrong. Other people say, no, 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 this is for the material poor. And then they decide that that means other people's money needs to be spent differently. Right? So whether it's, well, the government needs to start doing this, or the wealthy people over there, they need to start giving their money towards, the, both are wrong. When Jesus says there is good news for the poor, he means something about your money. Don't worry about anybody else. Worry about your own money. Because this poor, and, and I, I don't have time to, to make the case, in Luke's gospel, in Acts, it does not just mean spiritual poverty. It is, a re- it is a reference to people who are economically oppressed in poverty and struggling to survive. And in some sense, while Jesus' message is exclusive to the spiritually poor, you have to be spiritually poor to receive it. It's, it's especially for the material, material poor. I want to be clear what I mean by that. I don't mean that, that being wealthy is bad and being poor is good. That's not true. The Bible doesn't say that. I think what it means is that those who are in poverty typically, and this is just a historical fact, this is true if you look through history, the people who, who are materially poor are more open to the gospel because of its implications for, for them. Right, so you look through Christian history and what you'll find is from the beginning, including Acts, and a lot of what's happening here with Jesus is that it's the ethnic minorities, it's women, it's the outcast who were all the first to believe in Jesus. And those who had wealth, who had power, who had influence, were the last. And that's, that's a word we need to hear, not because being wealthy is bad. The Bible doesn't say that. But because the wealthy were the last and the least likely to respond to the gospel. Our power, our wealth, makes many of us in this room the least likely people to accept the message of Jesus. We are like Naaman. We have so much wealth, so much power, so much prestige, we have to strip away to get into the vulnerable place to receive the salvation of Jesus as a person of spiritual poverty. And that's what's hard about this message. If, if, If the life of Jesus and the message of Jesus means there's good news for the poor, it means if you are saved by Jesus, your life will be good news for the poor. So is it? Can I just be honest with you this morning? Mine, mine is not. And every time you, you, you see a wealthy person in the Gospel of Luke encounter Jesus, they do one of two things. They either walk away from him, or they have a radically new orientation to their wealth, and they give large amounts of it away. We see that in the story of Zacchaeus. In Luke 19, we see that in the story of the tax collectors in Luke 3. In Acts 4, we read that Christians were so generous, there, were no, there was no poverty in the early church, which is a stunning statement because most early Christians were poor, which means the few rich people who joined the community were so generous, there was no poverty in the early church because people encountered Jesus, and when they heard, there's good news for my spiritual poverty, they, they assumed that had implications for their material wealth, and it made them obscenely generous. I want to be clear, I know, like, we care about the poor. And I, like, certainly, compared to the average uh, across the U.S., this is an incredibly generous congregation, right? And and, and we're so generous as a congregation, we have a significant amount of money in our budget. This week, um, I'm working through someone who's in, in, in extreme poverty, very vulnerable, has a, good, has a good job, he lost his vehicle to get to that job, and we're working out, what's the best way to help him, right? And because of your generosity, 
we can help him as, as a church. And yet, like, it's easy for me to be generous with other people's money. And certainly I give, like, that's a part of my money's in there. But it's easy to be generous with other people's money. And I've, I see a lot of people read this passage and want to be really generous with other people's money. And I don't, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in all of us learning what does it mean to be generous with my own money. Because Luke's message in, in Luke and Acts is not that um, there's good news for the poor through the wealthy or through governments or through other things. There's good news for the poor through my community. Because when you encounter me through your spiritual poverty, your wealth will become good news for those who are in material poverty. And I want to tread carefully here, and yet Jesus talked about money and wealth 20 to 30 times more than he talked about sexuality. And every commentator, and this is true, having done a lot of work in Luke and Acts, every commentator would point out in Luke's gospel and Acts that Luke talks the most and very intentionally about wealth and money because his central message is there's good news for the poor. So I just want to ask one question to help you as you begin to meditate on this, right? And we push into some, this is hard stuff to push into this, and I'm, I hope you hear I'm with you in this. Here's my one question for you. Based on your income, would the people in the same wealth Income status as you find you to be outrageously generous. Not just generous, like generous in a weird way. Like, what's wrong with you? That sort of generous. And maybe you're, you're sitting there thinking, I can't yet. I, am not, I don't have enough money yet. Here's an interesting study. According to Share Faith, um, a, a, a group that does work on uh, financial generosity in the church, Christians making less than $20,000 a year are eight times more likely to give away 10% of their income than people and families making $75,000 a year. This isn't enough money issue. It's tough to track, but looking at a variety of studies, I feel confident that only between 5 to 10% of Christians today give away 10% of their income. In America, the wealthiest country in the history of the world, and we've been blessed in strange ways with the wealth and material wealth available to us, we aren't even at the level of the Old Testament, a much poorer society, considered to be the floor of generosity, which is 10%. And I would ask this hard question. Does that reality suggest that we as a people have actually encountered a Messiah who says, my central message is there is good news for the poor? Are you starting to see why they threw or tried to throw Jesus off the cliff? See, it's easy for us to avoid these, these things, right? We, we just make Jesus into a little lamb-holding, cute, cuddly Jesus. We don't think about the implications of Jesus for the things that we hold most dear to us, whether it's our money or our sexuality or our, our lives. And, and I would say if your wealth and the way you spend it and use it is the exact same as someone who doesn't follow Jesus... I think you need to ask a really hard question, which is, am I actually following Jesus? And here's the answer. It's not, okay, now you better do it better this week. Just try harder this week, right? Stop looking at commercials, you know, cancel your Amazon. Try harder. If that's the message, none of us have any hope. And that's not the message Jesus gives here. The answer for you and I is not, okay, I've got to take another Dave Ramsey class, or I've got to, I've got to no, the answer, the answer for all of us is, is this. Because like the whole point is Jesus doesn't come and say, I have good news for the spiritually middle class. I have good news for those who can look at me and say, I will finally get it right this time, and they actually mean it. That is not the message of Jesus. The message of Jesus is there is good news for the poor. 
And so Jesus looks at us and says, I don't owe you a thing. And until you know that's true in your heart, your, your use of wealth will never change. You won't be able to forgive the people around you. You'll treat the, out, the people who are outcasts. You'll look down on them. You'll think you're better than them. Until you, until you hear Jesus saying and looking at you, I don't owe you anything, and you know it's true. Then you're ready to hear the rest of the gospel, right? Which is, there's good news for the poor. And if you believe that, there's liberty for the captives. There's sight for the blind. The prisoners can be set free. The year of the Lord's favor will begin. The yes, Jesus looks at us and says, I don't owe you a thing, but here's what, what I will give you. I'll give you the riches of heaven to cover your spiritual poverty. I will put my body and I will break it on a cross for you, taking on the shame of your sins. I will pour out my blood to forgive you and to give you new life on a cross, showing all the ways of the pain that Jesus encountered to take on the ways we continually fail and reject him. Jesus looks at us and says, I don't owe you anything. But grace is here if you want it. Let's pray. Father, it's hard to preach a message where the end of it was people wanted to kill Jesus. Um, it's hard to know what the, how to preach that faithfully without entering into some confrontational space. And yet, and yet God, I, I pray... This morning, we could all embrace our spiritual poverty. We could look at, at the reality of our lives, the things that aren't changed, the things that are the, the same for us, that, that haven't, haven't led to freedom, and just say, okay, the, the answer isn't to try harder. The answer is to get lower. It's to embrace our own poverty before Jesus. God, for many of us, we don't know how to do that because we're hard workers. We've accomplished a lot. We look at our lives and say, I did that. I worked hard for that and to come to you and say I can't work for any of this I can't earn any of this it's hard for us and yet it's the only way so lead us that way spirit for the glory of Jesus we pray amen